Cain get his wife? Well, as Henry Morris points out in his great commentary on Genesis, that the multiplication of people, when it started, at least Adam's sons had to marry one of Adam's daughters. And probably in that first generation, that was the case of all the marriages were brother and sister. And in that early time of man's history, no genetic harm resulted. But by the time you get to Moses and the law of Moses, it would have been genetically dangerous. And so the law forbid what we call incest. So with people living so long, it's likely that the population grew very rapidly to over 100,000 people or more. And with the population growing so fast, we see in our study today that civilization developed very quickly with all kinds of skills and technology going on. And what we learn in our study today in particular is the contrast between the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth. We learn about humanistic civilization, Developing when they develop uh, their music and weapons and agriculture. And then Seth's line, in contrast, is one about worshiping God. Moses would have wanted the people of Israel to be aware of their roots, that they came through it, the godly line of Seth. Presented to us in chapter 4, today is a picture of the world we really live in, humanistic, empty, shallow, and independent of God. Technology may continue to advance as we are able to have a great deal of ease in many ways in our lives because of it all, Uh, but our world is still focusing on advancing and materialism. There's really nothing new under the sun. But Moses wants us to see then the contrast of the godly seed as opposed to the seed of Cain. He wants all of us to be focused on being a worshiper of God instead of one who just pursues the empty pursuits of our culture. And so we begin at the beginning of the very first society of mankind. And I'm thankful for my husband's notes, who helped me a great deal in preparing. So we see characteristics of this first society. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land east of Eden, or land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Well, we saw last week that Cain murdered his brother Abel, and Abel had been puni- Cain had been punished then by God by saying, no longer will you be able to be a farmer because whatever you do, you're going to fail. So Cain was to become a wanderer on the earth, trying to just survive. That was his punishment. But we read here that he settled down at some point in the land of Nod, east of Eden, As I said, God said, you'll be a wanderer, but now we see Cain said, no, I'm not going to wander. I'm going to settle down. I'm going to have a place. I'm going to build a city. So Cain named his son Enoch and named the city after him. And this is not clearly the same Enoch we'll see in chapter 5. It would seem that Cain continued his defiant attitudes towards God, who said he'd be a wanderer on the earth. So he settles down, builds a people, and a society emerges of people living and working, but God is really not a part of this society. This line of Cain becomes self-sufficient and skilled as they developed in their society. It's in the defiant attitude of Cain, we see the family of a city developed, and within that time, great accomplishments happen for sure. I mean, people were incredibly intelligent, but it is a society without thought of God. Just like the psalmist expressed in Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together 
against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This is the society of Cain's time, and it is certainly the society of our culture as well. People think they don't need God. They're fine to live their independent lives how they choose to live it. And we saw last week, too, as Cain being the founder of all man-made religion. I'll come to God on my terms. Actually, most people make up the God that they have in their mind, and then they'll worship him the way they want. So the next thing we see is moral disobedience. Now, Enoch was born to Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujalah. Mahujalah, the father of Methashaliah, and he became the father of Lamech. And Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the other was Zillah. So we see four generations into Cain's descendants, stopping with a man named Lamech here. And again, not the Lamech of chapter 5 that we will look at. Here's the first man to violate God's pattern for marriage. He took two wives for himself instead of one. It didn't take long for the moral decline to start in society, and obviously it's continued to this day. Culture then, as well as now, is characterized by immorality and moral perversion of God's holy standards. God made the blueprint one man, one woman, united in marriage forever. Clearly, people from every era have ignored God's plan for sexual purity and faithfulness to one's spouse. So now we live in a world of such sexual immorality that's in complete opposition to God's word. And believe, as believers, we know clearly from 1 Thessalonians and multiple other passages that we are to abstain from all sexual immorality. As believers, God has given us the Holy Spirit to help control our desires Unbelievers are slaves to their lusts, but that should not be the case with someone who's trusted Christ. It is sad that so many fail in their moral purity, even among believers. But God has called us to be different from the world we live in, not ignoring God's word or disregarding what he teaches in his word. We're not to be like Lamech. Besides the first society from Cain being characterized by their defiance and moral disobedience, we see incredible cultural advancements. In verses 20 through 22, Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre or the pipe. And then as for Zillah, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. So here we learn about the three sons of Lamech. These three are mentioned because they each were part of such a huge contribution to society. Jabal invented the tent, the founder really of the nomadic lifestyle. He was involved in commercial use of animals, buying and selling animals for milk and helping people buy beasts of burdens for their farming efforts. Jubal was the inventor of musical instruments, the lyre or lyre sounding board that had strings on it and the pipe which would be like our flute today. So Jubal-Cain invented tools out of bronze and iron. They would be implements that would have been used for um, farming as well as, I'm sure, for self-defense and war. So God includes these men in Scripture as their contributions served to make life easier for people at that time. The business of cattle and agriculture and tools for work and music to help relax are all things that characterize the first society. So there were quick cultural advancements 
made to try to make life easier and more enjoyable. And certainly today, we all benefit in our lives from the incredible advancements of technology. And they make things simpler for us in some ways. Um, Kane's family is really a picture of modern man today, uh, making technical advancements in the midst of moral failure. So none of these things that serve to distract us or should serve to distract us, even though they might make life simpler, uh, God is the only one who can meet our deepest needs. Not music, um, not conveniences, but the Lord God himself. Well, that brings us to the society then characterized by self-exaltation. I mean, Lamech is quite the character. This is his great poem he wrote to his wives. Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Serious pride problem <clears throat> with this guy. <clears throat> so very proud Lamech gives a poem to his wife, boasting of his strength and the fact that he murdered somebody. He was proud that he had done so, and he belittled the man he murdered and then exalted himself with his prideful remarks. He thinks he has far more value than Cain and boasts that anyone who killed him would be avenged 77 times. So this is the first society. It truly looks no different than ours. People continue to be defiant and independent of God, uh, morally disobedient, continuing to make incredible advancements in technology and exalting self. However, the next two verses tell us that this was not the case for every human being in that society. Verse 25, we read, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For, she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. <clears throat> so to replace the godly line of Abel, God gave Adam and Eve another son they called Seth. He would be a new line, and with his son Enosh, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And even though the majority of culture and society defies God, there has always been a small remnant of people that worship God. And that was true then, and it's certainly true today. That leads us to the next chapter then, where we have the genealogy from the godly line of Seth. And we also see in chapter 5 the fact that death now reigns on the earth. People live, people die. I happen to enjoy walking through old cemeteries and reading tombstones. My family thinks that's very odd. And my poor husband, he gets dragged into cemeteries when we're on trips. But anyways, I find it interesting to read the tombstones. So the rest of this chapter is like walking through a cemetery and looking at the tombstones here. It's a list of 10 men from Adam to Noah. And we read eight times, and he died. This chapter is in total contrast to, to the ungodly line of Cain. And even though this chapter reveals to us that death is a reality for all, we will see death can be conquered and that there is comfort offered to us even when we face death. So though the pattern is death after a very long life, there are two individuals that stand out, one who did not die named Enoch and the other one whose name means comfort, and that is Noah. So 
Chapter 5, Death is the Result of the Curse. So in this book of the generations of Adam, in the day when God created a man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. I I just have to laugh when I think about the family gatherings and how extended this. I mean, when you have that many kids and cousins and aunts, it's mind-bending. Uh, This chapter begins by telling us about what is to follow the list of Adam's descendants. So Moses goes back to Adam and Eve at the beginning of creation, reminding us of God's original intention for the human race. The first couple had been blessed by God. They were to be fruitful. They were to multiply, and they were to rule on the planet Earth. Adam and Eve were clearly told that if they ate of the forbidden fruit, they would die. And now we see the reality and the effects of that disobedience. As Moses goes on to give the obituary of all these men, he first says that Adam became the father of a son in his own likeness and named him Seth. So we just saw the list of the descendants of Cain in chapter 4. But notice it never said that Cain was a son in the likeness of Adam. It seems the emphasis here is that beginning with the birth of Seth, there is a line of people who resembled Adam in his faith. Yes, they were fallen sinners just like Adam, but they had also followed the Lord and worshiped God. So despite wickedness all around them, they were faithful to the Lord. It is this line of godly men, starting with Seth, who lived and died, who uh, seem to have the, the theme that they each uh, lived, had a significant son that was born, had many other kids, and then they died. Romans 3.23 reminds us of the fact that the wages of sin is death. And that's always been the case. Death spread to all men because of sin. Adam was our head, and in a sense, we were in his loins. So when we are then identified with him in the human race, so that when he sinned, we were there sinning as well. So the sad truth is that death is not natural. It is not normal. Rather, it is a horrifying result of the curse of man and a reminder that we are all sinners who will die and face God one day. And every day that we live is one day closer to the day of our death. There is no way to escape death unless we happen to be the generation in the church age that will be raptured. But there is a way to conquer death so that it no longer defeats us. The great hope we have is that death has been conquered. As we read of the deaths of Seth's descendants, Moses now tells us of one of Jared's sons named Enoch. It is Enoch who offers us a ray of hope for the human uh, condition, that, for all those who are under the curse of death. We are told that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And where did he go? Well, we read in Hebrews eleven five: by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. I wonder what the family thought. Where'd he go? He's just not here. That had to be something. Uh, 
one of the jokes I read, there weren't very many good ones from Methuselah, but, well, I'll save it till I get to Methuselah. All right. Like the prophet Elijah, only Enoch and he went directly up to heaven without ever dying. The emphasis is not so much that he never died, but the fact that he walked with God. Verse 22 says, Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 days. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. As one author put it, walking with God means he had a lifestyle of obedience and devotion to God with constant intimate conversation and communication. For over 300 years, Enoch experienced intimate fellowship with God. And as a result of his obedience and faith, God took him home without death, end of quote. In other words, he walked with God all the way home to heaven. What we have illustrated here is that ultimately death will be conquered. The way to victory over death is in walking with God. Enoch is the testimony of God to us. Uh, if we walk with God in this life, we'll walk right into the next life with him. Enoch shows us that death isn't final, that there is life that comes after death as we walk with God. And even though we are still under the curse of death, there is a way to God. There is a way to life when we walk with him. Clearly, the New Testament develops the thought and teaches us the way to eternal life is through faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross on our behalf. Eternal life has always been by faith and by God's grace. As Hebrews eleven six tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those who have faith today in God and trust in Christ uh, walk with him. So what is it like? what was it like for Enoch to walk with God? Can you even wrap your head around how long he walked with God? Hundreds of years? I'll tell you, the life of faith is always a marathon. It's never a 50-yard dash or sprint. To walk with God is to be faithful to him over the long haul of life with all of its tragedies, all of its challenges, all of its ups and downs. Certainly it was trying for Enoch to walk with God in a world filled with evil. He lived up to the time just before the flood, so you know it was a really vile time. Not only that, but there comes um, interesting truth about Enoch in the New Testament that really gives us more insight into him. In the book of Jude, verse 14 and 15, we read, It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So God revealed to Jude that Enoch was actually a prophet and he actually proclaimed the second coming of Christ when the world would be judged. Four times Enoch mentions the word ungodly, because the world he lived in was just as ungodly as the one we live in and as the one Christ will return to one day when he comes back to judge. He may have been the only godly person around at that point, and yet in spite of the wickedness of his own day, he walked with God. This is true for believers today as well. We walk with God when we obey his word, walk in fellowship with him, repent of our sins when we blow it. Hebrews tells us that he was pleasing to God, which certainly means he was not pleasing to the people around him. 
The people he would have preached to would have been ungodly relatives. They would have been his cousins, second cousin, third, and on and on. Can't imagine what family's gatherings were like, as I said earlier, when you lived that long. I'd say you only celebrate a birthday every 25 years. I don't know. When you live in 800. Anyways, for many of us, we know what it's like to be the only believer in extended families. They often are resentful of what you stand for and what you believe and why the word of God is your authority and not our society. But we can please the Lord by faith when we walk in obedience to his word. Enoch is God's testimony to us that those who walk with him in this life will conquer death in the sense that they will be with him in life after death. So then we read about Methuselah lived 187 years and he became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech and he had other sons and daughters. Can you even imagine how many? And so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. So the little joke I saw about Methuselah, somebody came to see him and he was looking very depressed and and they said, What's, why are you so down, Methuselah? And he said, well, I haven't seen my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids for so long. <laughs> so, anyways. Okay. <laughs> All right, verse 28. Lamech uh, lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called the name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So these verses tell us about the oldest man to ever live on record, 969 years. And during his long lifetime, he had a son named Lamech, who then had a son named Noah. And Lamech named his son Noah because he longed for rest and for comfort from the toil brought on by the curse. Noah's name means rest. As one author put it, it appears that Lamech believed that Noah would be that promised deliverer the one who would crush the serpent's head. Well, we know Noah wasn't that deliverer, but he does fit into God's plan for hope and comfort as we face death. Noah and his families were the only one to survive the flood. He had a son named Shem, and from Shem came Jesus of Nazareth. It is Jesus who makes it possible for us to be delivered from the penalty of our sin. It was on the cross that he crushed Satan's head and rendered him powerless so that we no longer have to fear death, as Hebrews chapter 2 tells us. So even though we've just walked through a cemetery from a long time ago, we are reminded then of the reality of death, but we have hope. From the godly line of Seth ultimately came Jesus, who took the wrath of God in judgment in the place of sinners when he hung on the cross. What a comfort that we can face death with hope because of Jesus. And unless the Lord returns, each of us here, all of us sitting in this room, are going to die. But if you have turned from your sins and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and his authority and trusted him alone as a way to be forgiven of all of the sins you've sinned against God, then he gives the gift of eternal life, and there is no longer fear of death and judgment. Then we can walk with God like Enoch. We can walk with God from our deathbed, walk right into heaven. I hate death. I hate that it does so much harm and pain and sorrow and suffering. 
But for those who walk with God, death ultimately becomes our graduation day. I love this old quote from Charles Spurgeon. Depend on it. Your dying hour will be the best hour you have ever known. Your last moment will be your richest moment. Better than the day of your birth will be the day of your death. It shall be the beginning of heaven, the rising of the sun that shall go no more down forever. I pray that you have this confidence and hope. It is not based on what you feel or what you think emotionally. It is based on the truth of the word of God. I hope you have made it your priority, and that you will today, to walk with God. It's so easy to be caught up in our culture and in the conveniences and in the push for materialism. But let us be women who follow the example of God, of Enoch, rather, rather, walking with God in a generation, in a society, in a culture that wants nothing to do with him. We are his lights in this very dark world. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths that you've included for your purposes. I thank you that we can follow the genealogy of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, all the way back to what we've just seen today. I thank you for coming. I thank you for conquering death. I thank you, Lord, that we can get to know you better and better through life's ups and downs, and that one day we'll know you perfectly when we finally arrive at our true home. Lord, you know the hearts of every woman here, their struggles, their pains, their heartaches. I pray you'll minister to them encouragement today that they will press on to walk with you by faith. And if there's any here who have not yet called upon you to save them from the penalty and the wrath of God because of their own sin, that you'll open their eyes to see their need. In Jesus' name, amen.